welcome to the BMP Round Podcast. Once again, this is your host, Brian. Thanks again for joining me, or thanks to those of you who are joining me for the first time. Today's podcast is on the topic of time. I will be reading to you first from Charles Eisenstein's book, The Ascent of Humanity, an essay he wrote about time. And then you'll be listening to an essay that I wrote about time titled, Why Natural Time Rules and Clock Time Sucks. And when that's done, you get to hear book two, chapter 11 and 12 of The Teacher and the Tree Man. Okay, enjoy the show. The point of today's podcast is to talk about time. What is time and how do we use it? How do we live by it? How does our modern conception of time govern our lives and tear us apart from our humanness? In the background, you can hear the song, Never Tear Us Apart, the NXS classic, 1980s from their great album, Kick. And this is a cover version by another great band, The National. I'm gonna leave it running for a little bit. As I read to you from Charles Eisenstein's groundbreaking book, The Ascent of Humanity, and a section on time that he titled, Keeping Time. The ultimate and perhaps most significant conversion of reality into numbers is the measurement of time. Clocks do to time what name and number do to the material world. They reduce it, make it finite. And what is time but life itself? Time is experience, process, the flow of being. By measuring time, by converting it into numbers, we rob it of its infinitude and uniqueness in precisely the same way that nouns and numbers reduce the physical world. Time measurement turns a succession of unique moments into just so many seconds, minutes, and hours, and denies the particularity of each person's subjective experience of them. I'm going to turn the music down now. The keeping of time began in Neolithic times with the calendar used to manage the planting of crops. Since calendars are based on natural cycles of the sun, moon, and seasons, their distancing effect is minimal, just as early agriculturalists were still tightly wedded to nature. Because the measure of time was cyclical and not linear, early calendars did not have the effect of binding time, creating history, and numbering the years of one's life. Soon, however, with the rise of long-distance commerce and hierarchical government, it became necessary to keep records over a span of years. In Egypt, Mesopotamia, India, China, and Central America, people began to number the years, e.g. from the start of a dynasty, thereby introducing linearity to time and divorcing it from the cycles of nature. The artificial division of the day into hours, curiously, both the Babylonians and ancient Chinese used 12, and the Hebrew invention of seven-day weeks only deepened this divorce, which has culminated in the replacement of circular clocks with digital clocks, obliterating the last remaining link between measured time and the cyclical processes of nature. I'm pausing there because that part is key. Continuing. Crude division of the day into hours was sufficient for the demands of the Iron Age, but industry requires a far more precise coordination of human activity. The development of mechanical clocks in the late Middle Ages set the stage for the Industrial Revolution. As Lewis Mumford put it, the clock, not the steam engine, is the key machine of the Industrial Age. The more finely we divided and measured time, first into hours, then minutes and seconds, the less we seemed to have of it, and the more the clock encroached upon and usurped sovereignty over life, until today we are all on the clock. To be punctual is the onus of a slave toward a master or a subject toward a king. 
Today we are all subject to schedules imposed by the machine requirements of precision, regularity, and standardization. We think of machines as our servants, but our constant rush to be on time says otherwise. Immersed in linear time measurement, it is hard to appreciate the audacity of dividing up the day into standard units, man-made hours, minutes, and seconds that are deliberately unconnected to natural processes and therefore objective, in quotes, objective. The idea, to paraphrase Thomas Pynchon, that every second is of equal length and irrevocable is only as recent as the clock. Or, as Paul Campos puts it, until very recently, there was no such thing as 6.17 a.m. The clock translates heavenly movement into earthly routine. Time measurements profoundly accelerated human separation from nature. Mumford comments, By its essential nature, the clock dissociated time from human events and helped create the belief in an independent world of mathematically measurable sequences, the special world of science. There is relatively little foundation for this belief in common human experience. Throughout the year, the days are of uneven duration, and not merely does the relation between day and night steadily change, but a slight journey from east to west alters astronomical time by a certain number of minutes. In terms of the human organism itself, mechanical time is even more foreign. While human life has regularities of its own, the beat of the pulse, the breathing of the lungs, this, these change from hour to hour with mood and action. And in the longer span of days, time is measured not by the calendar, but by the events that occupy it. Back to Eisenstein. In effect, clocks turn time into another standardized, interchangeable part of the world machine, facilitating the engineering of the world. Only time thus devalued is a conceivable object of commerce. Otherwise, who would sell their moments, each infinitely precious, for a wage? Who would reduce time, i.e. life, to mere money? Leibniz's merciless phrase, time is money, encapsulates a profound reduction of the world and enslavement of the spirit. It is not surprising that the revolutionaries of Paris's 1830 July Revolution went around the city smashing its clocks. The fundamental purpose of clocks is not to measure time, it is to coordinate human activity. Aside from that, it is a fiction, a pretense. As Thoreau said, time measures nothing but itself. Smashing the clocks represents a refusal to sell one's time, a refusal to schedule one's life or to bring it into conformity with the needs of specialized mass society. Further, it represents a declaration that I will live my own life, establishing the ascendancy of now. The scheduled and hurried life is the life of a slave whose life is not his own. A fundamental power over another is to compel him to appear when beckoned. When I say come, you will come. To rule a person's time is to rule his life. In modern society, we are chronically busy, too busy to do the things we want to, too busy to stop and smell the roses, too busy to spend an hour looking at clouds, too busy to play games with children, too busy to spend more time on anything than is necessary. As John Zerzan so poignantly observes, the clock makes time scarce and life short. Hence the compulsive obsession with speed, efficiency, and convenience in modern technological society. Why else would we seek to get there faster, do it faster, have it faster, except for the belief that our days are numbered? The anxiety of modern society comes in large part from the feeling that there is not enough time. Daniel Greenberg explains, You've always got to be doing something useful. You have to account for every minute of the day in a productive way. If, when you go to sleep at night, you can't really say that you have used every minute of your time productively, then a piece of your life has flitted by, never to return again. You've just squandered it. Back to Eisenstein. After all, any moment could be used to exercise more control over the world, to enhance survival and comfort. Maybe, after we have maximized the possibility of all these things, then we can afford some leisure, play, recreation. Afford? 
That is a financial metaphor, is it not? Time is money. To be at leisure originally meant not to be subject to the constraints of time. Today, we schedule in leisure along with everything else. And the freedom to linger at whim by the roadside until good and ready to leave seems a rare luxury. Our leisure is more akin to a prison's furlough. We have lost the primal right to our time. The pace of modern life continues to accelerate. In business, we have just-in-time inventory management, instantaneous communications, same-day turnaround. We schedule our days more and more tightly, down to the minute, even as we extend the regime of the schedule further and further into childhood, starting with the imposition of hospital schedules on the newborn. Time management and multitasking have become essential skills in coping with the onrushing deluge of modern life. They are, along with devices such as cell phones and personal digital assistance, technological fixes that apply yet more control to deal with the problems caused by control. Even as adult life marches to the ever-accelerating beat of the machine, so have the endless afternoons of childhood given way to the scheduled confines of school and other programmed activities. For the first time in history, children are too busy to play. Consider the tragedy of that statement. Let it reverberate in your chest. Children are too busy to play. I'm going to stop there and leave you with that thought because to me that's one of the more disturbing aspects of all of this. But, you know, I want to say this. It's not just that children are too busy. That's horrible enough, but humans, adults. And that's why we adults have lost touch with our humanity in many ways. Next, I'm going to share with you how this or why this topic is on my mind. Uh, before I do that, I should say that this topic has been of time and how we use time really has been one of the key, I would say one of the driving impulses of my life. Uh, it goes back to at least as long as when I was 25 years old, driving to work one day, stuck in traffic, and I couldn't deal with the traffic anymore and being a little bit late to work. So I pulled off the road and drove up into the mountains instead and made a prayer to the universe. Please, I want to live my life for time, not money. And ever since then, I think I've done pretty well. However, um, my job recently in the past, I would say, well, seven or eight years, but especially in the past few years, I think our society is becoming more and more tight and uptight about time. And I'm going to share with you the story about why this topic is this week's podcast topic. Welcome again to Russia Tonight. This is your host, as always, on the upside of I am Lukniv Nairab. Today, the topic is the upside of the coronavirus. We have three callers on the line waiting. Let's get to it. Our first caller is... Hmm, this is a hard one to read. John Monovich Krestenstein. You're calling from where does it say here? Pushkin on the outskirts of St. Petersburg. Please, we call it Leningrad here still, sir. Oh, okay, my mistake. Indeed, we should honor our communist fathers. That is correct. Tell us, why do you think that coronavirus has an upside? Well, it is quite obvious, sir. Coronavirus is destroying the infrastructure of capitalism as we see it. It is Marx's revenge, indeed. I think you're correct. Indeed, it's true. Anything else? Oh, uh, the coronavirus is making my, my feet smell better. Your feet smell better? Indeed. That is very interesting. Okay. Who do we have next on the line here? 
Oh, this is a person calling a woman. This time, a woman calling on our show. Indeed, we are quite modern here. This is a piggy pain bottom from Kurumnachuk outside of Kiev. That is correct. Miss Peanbottom, oh, actually, it's Penbottom. Please, why does coronavirus have an upside? Well, last year, as you know, here in the Ukraine, our pig industry was devastated by the African swine virus, the swine fever. It was terrible. The piggies were dropping like flies. Indeed, I heard all about it. It was terrible. For weeks, my bacon was more expensive. Oh, it was much worse down here. Believe me, the bacon was bad. But the coronavirus, I put some of it on. I sprinkled a little bit of the coronavirus on the piggy feed. And my pigs are growing much fatter, much healthier. And the bacon is much more delicious. Oh, this is good news indeed. I love my bacon in the morning. Yes, it's going to be great. Just you wait. Please send us a sample. Indeed I will. Thank you very much. Okay, last on the line we have. What's your name? I forgot my name. You forgot your name. Oh, I remembered. It's a Catnip Amazon. Catnip Amazon. Indeed, that is a weird name and one that would be impossible for me to forget. Please tell us, what is the upside of the coronavirus? Well... I got a little dingy business here on the river here in Ertish, Ertish River. What is that? Well, it goes into the Ob River. Oh, I've heard of the Ob. Indeed, it's one of the it's the seventh longest river in the world. Is that correct? I might be right. I don't know. I don't know how to count. So maybe so. Look, so tell us, how does coronavirus impact you, and why is it good? Well, all the airplanes are being grounded. So. If you see, my dinghy is going to have a lot of really good business. Good business? Ah, that sounds fantastic. Yes. We have one more caller on the line. Who is this? Uh, my name is Brian Winchell. Oh, Brian Winchell, you always call into these shows. Why do you have to bother us? Oh, I've got one more upside of the, the coronavirus. Uh, what? What is your upside? Oh, I don't have to teach class today, and it's kind of nice. I was hoping I could teach a few more classes, but today I didn't want to go to class, and so I don't have to teach class. Where are you calling from? Are you in Russia, too? No, I'm not in Russia. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. That's all the time we have for today's show, everybody. Thank you very much. Please welcome to uh, another show next time when we are joining us about the upside of something good that uh, everybody thinks is bad. Today, this is the upside of the coronavirus with your host, Lekvli Nareib. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Why Natural Time Rules and Clock Time Sucks A personal tale about why I could no longer bow to the clock. Time is a construct, and so if I was a member of the village people, I'd be the construction worker. Because I'm always playing with time, always pondering it, wondering how I can use it more efficiently, asking it for permission to release me from the clock, which sometimes crawls slower than a turtle on high-grade heroin, and other times races faster than an antelope on pure golden masshole methamphetamine. In fact, over two decades ago in my mid-twenties, I made a deal with the universe. I want to live for time, not money. And because of that, time is one of those things I feel I can speak about with some expertise. Which is why I think this essay is worth your time. You see, I'm starting to get a distinct sense that our modern culture is going to be facing some rather key decisions about time in the coming years. I think the coronavirus and the reaction to it are only the beginning of this, but I'll save a more big picture perspective for a future essay. Today, I want to focus on my personal experience with this clash between what I call clock time, which is a human construct, and natural time, which is not. Shall we begin? How my natural time conflicted with clock time. In the past few months, I often find myself in an uncanny sink with time. I get around by bicycle, and I've lost count of how many times I've effortlessly arrived at my destination when whatever podcast, music, or audiobook I was listening to ended within seconds of me pulling to a stop. I'm not making any effort to do this, 
not looking at the length of what I'm listening to and figuring out how long it will take me to get to my destination and then trying to sync things up. No, it just happens. This is why the vice principal at the Japanese junior high school I work at needs to take a chill pill and, um, chillax. The variety of chill pills available over the counter here in Japan seems sorely lacking compared to my home state of Washington, where weed is now legal to the point of it growing out of the ears of my father. You see, on the day this tale begins, I had a rare day where I had no classes, so I decided to take it a bit slower on the bike ride in. Now, when I take it slow, my friends, that usually doesn't mean I'm lollygagging. No, my mind is as active as a sea serpent on the Orient Express to Jupiter. So on the way in, I took the beautiful photo you see below this paragraph, recorded the intro to my second official podcast episode of the week, and listened to the two chapters of my novel that are included in said podcast. You'll have to see the blog to see the photo. So it wasn't like I was farting my way to Philadelphia. I was busy. And yet, about 15 seconds before reaching the school, the chapters of my book ended, so I knew I was, again, right on natural time. Unfortunately, the vice principal is a man who seems obsessed with clock time. So in what may have been something approaching a panic worthy of a mother dealing with a melting down kid waiting in a line at a McDonald's, he actually called my house and asked my wife, Just where in the hell is your lazy-ass indolent husband who works for me? Now, before I go on, let me be clear. I work in Japan. So every bit of dialogue I will refer to henceforth was said in Japanese. The phone call I just quoted, though? Verbatim. If you believe that. So I'm sneaking into school. I ain't giving away how. And my phone starts to buzz in my bag. I think it must be the weekend job that my contract says I'm not allowed to do. Please listen to episode 7 of the podcast to understand this nonsense. Because those people also tend to panic about clock time. And I'm supposed to call them by the end of the workday just to tell them not to worry that I am actually going to show up on time for a gig on Saturday. Something I've never failed to do in over 10 years of working for them. So I let the fucking annoying phone ring. You see, I have a rule for people in my life. Don't call me, unless it is a big fucking emergency. However, as I'm trying to sneak by the window that my vice principal looks out onto, I have an intuition. It might be him calling. But no, I get to the locker room to put my bag away and check and find out it's my wife. Did my stay-at-home, rebellious, yet totally awesome 14-year-old son throw another hammer in her direction? I call. Where are you? At school, I say. Kuragano Junior High School. Huh? My wife could be hard of hearing for some reason. I say it again, this time in Japanese and louder. The vice principal there is calling for you. Are you late? Nope, I'm right on time, I say. And, thinking the call is done, I press the disconnect button as I hear her start to say something else. Oh well, she'll call back but only if it's a big fucking emergency, of course. Now, we all have different definitions of things, and my definition of emergency is quite different from the Japanese one. But still, I don't think the VP thought that this was an emergency. You see, he's a pretty good guy. He's usually able to laugh with me about silly shit, such as how, after I mailed in my Washington state primary election ballot, I told him that the world deserved to be woken from the four-year fart storm that has been the Trump presidency. Oops, perhaps your politics differ from mine. In fact, I bet they do. If I were king for a day, I'd declare all days a public holiday henceforth and require all humans except for men over the age of 46 to parade around naked every Saturday in August. Anyway, the VP is generally pretty chill. But one of the jobs the VP has in Japan is to be the disciplinarian. And a Japanese teacher's room, and office in general, I believe, has no cubicles because, in a culture that is more focused on the collective than the individual, cubicles ain't a thing. I'm somewhat okay with this, but in the case of trying to walk to one's desk late without making a scene, well, I wish I had them. Here's how it went down. VP. 
What happened? Me. It's okay. Apologies, but another aside, and this really does need explaining because Japanese and English are very different, and after 15 years, I still don't have a great grasp on the nuances. I answered, Daijobu, and my meaning was, it's okay. But one of the key features of Japanese is, especially in spoken Japanese, people often don't say the subject of a sentence, so a direct translation would be, okay. Though I think by the way I said it, he understood it as, it's okay, partner, take that chill pill. Because if I'd answered with a different tone, he might have thought I meant, I'm okay, and then figured I was interpreting his question as being one of concern for my material well-being, rather than an admonishment of my tardiness. Got it? No, neither do I. No matter, he understood me correctly, and I understood him, too, so he said, No, it's not okay. Me putting my bag on my desk, pondering my response, calculating not to look him in the eye, for I don't want or need this to be a confrontation. Well, I don't have any classes today. VP. That doesn't matter, something, something, something. I didn't hear that trifecta of somethings because he's wrong. It does matter. The only reason I need to be here on clock time is if I have a class, or if I've made a promise to someone to be on time for some sort of work I'm helping them with. But nope. All I had to do was make a worksheet for my final third grade class, which isn't even for another week, so I'm being diligent in doing it on this day. It's a task that'll take an hour or two, and I'm on a seven-hour day. 37 minutes and 31 seconds late, or whatever, doesn't matter. However, the VP is fulfilling his role as disciplinarian, and without those cubicles, he's doing this in front of about six other teachers, so this is now the show for everyone. I decide that this conversation has gone on way too long. He's wasting my natural time, so I put my hand up in his direction in a sort of gentle but also un- I want to be done with this and so should you way all while still emptying my bag and preparing for actual work. And I say, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And that ends it. I keep unpacking, and then I'm thinking about it. I'm pretty sure in American culture, unless your boss was a dick, he wouldn't do that in front of everyone. But in Japan, such things are done, not only to reprimand the individual, but to tell other individuals not to do this. That's all fine, but Japanese folks are, in my humble opinion, too obedient and complacent to even consider being 37 minutes and 31 seconds clock time late, so his show is really for nothing. It's just for me. But dude, for 15 years, this board of education has rehired me every year. Why? Because except for one year, when my principal was a miserable asshat who hated everyone, I've gotten an excellent evaluation, usually with the comments that I am hardworking and liked by everyone. Unfortunately, it seems that the relationship to time is changing, becoming tighter. And for me to explain that, I need you to hop into my time machine. Are you strapped in? Good. Let's go. The God Good Old Days Era, 2004 to 2012-ish. I don't want to cause people stress. And this is one of the reasons I am going to become a freelance worker at the end of March. Because since I started this job as an ALT, assistant language teacher, in 2004, I've watched as the people enforcing the system have become more uptight regarding clock time. And since I work for time, not money, this is a big problem for me. You see, in my first year, 2004, during the usual six-week summer vacation, people in my job had this responsibility. We were to go to our city's city hall around 8.30 a.m. and stay there for an hour or two. Usually around 9, our supervisor would come in, check if we were all there, we'd say we were, he'd chat for a minute, and then leave. And after he left, we could leave. And then we were free the rest of the day, no need to take vacation time. Okay, so that was in 2004. Flash forward to the dog daily officious grind era, 2002-ish to present. During summer vacation in these dog days, 
We are required to go to our schools for seven hours, and if we want to leave, we have to use vacation time. Please understand, we've got very little to do. Even the Japanese teachers, who are much busier and better paid than us ALTs, are not too busy. I've seen many reading novels, napping, playing solitaire on their computers, and taking very long lunches. But the point is, ALTs got almost nothing we have to do. Why do you think I spent like 60 hours coloring the shit out of this beautiful map pictured below? Because I had to be there and, well, listening to an audiobook, podcast, or music while coloring rules. Again, you'll have to wait for the article to see the picture. But I digress. In addition to that, sometimes we have seminars throughout the year. In the God era, once the seminars were done, we were free to go. No need for vacation time. And the seminars were really chill. In the dog era, we have official regimented conferences with speeches or events, or occasional topless jugglers. Please understand, we do enjoy those jugglers. And we actually learn more for our job than we ever did in the God era, which usually consisted of our boss revisiting his own God era when he was a teacher and not a guy in a suit overseeing a bunch of rabble-rousing foreigners by teaching us random stuff about Japanese culture. Anyway, the dog years began, and suddenly, when those fascinating meetings were over, we were told if we didn't go back to our schools, we needed to use our vacation time. For several years, I found ways to skip around this by just not filling it out on my time card and never being caught on it. Then, probably two years or so ago, I decided to start living with a bit more integrity and just fill those things out. But again, even then it was a pain in the arse because do you consider commute time, etc, etc, and really, what's the fucking point of clock time? Well, there is a point. For example, public transportation. In Japan, the trains always run on time, so you can count on them and that's generally a good thing. However. I can see myself enjoying life in a less clock-time-obsessed culture where trains aren't on time because it sounds a lot more easygoing, and I doubt folks like my VP exist. All that said, as I think this crazy essay can attest, I am a guy who keeps busy and likes to manage and play with my time efficiently, so I do think I prefer the idea of trains, boats, and airplanes leaving on time. Score one for clock time. But in this job, nah. My deal with the universe. Let me work for time, not money. Flashback to... Fuck it, I ain't taking the time to come up with another fancy acronym. A hot summer day in 1997. I'm stuck on the 101 freeway in the sweltering San Fernando Valley with no AC on my way to my job at the Los Angeles Daily News. And I have a Michael Douglas falling down moment. Don't get the reference, millennial? Not to worry. It's a pretty good, I've had it with the system, 1990s movie, which opens with Douglas abandoning his car in L.A. traffic, just walking off the side of the freeway to set on a quest to... No spoilers, you say? Gotcha. Watch the movie. So there I was, and I was going to be late for work. But it wasn't my fault. Traffic was way slower than normal. So I got off the freeway and heard the real god in my head, voice booming in James Earl Jones' timber, Go to the mountains, now! Never one to ignore burning bush moments, I drove for 15 minutes and then found myself on the side of the road, looking up toward the hazy L.A. sky and saying, Universe, I want to live for time, not money. Now, 2020 Brian knows I can work for both. But at the time, I was rebelling against the American cultural M.O. that the goal of life is money, partly because I'd known enough rich people to see that in many ways, most were more stressed and unhappy than us regular Joes and Janets. And so when I got this job in 2004 and found myself in a God era, I was in hog heaven. Do animals get their own separate heavens? If not, why do we say hog heaven? But not anymore. No, in the dog days, it seems like year by year people are stressing out more and more about clock time when there's no need for it. And it's causing them mental trouble and causing me mental trouble, 
when I am expected to follow it when I can see it is not necessary. You see, what the VP doesn't get is that, like most middle-aged people in Japan, especially those with kids, I'm on clock time a lot, and it gets tiring. So when I have a day when my job allows me to be off clock time, I want to just follow natural time for 37 minutes and 31 seconds. Is that too much to ask? Because when I do that, as I wrote way back at the start of this essay, I'm usually right on natural time. So yeah, I'm sorry to cause my vice principal stress, but I also know I can't take all of the responsibility for the stress he is causing himself. What I can do is write about topics like this and perhaps help others who are like my VP recognize ways they can relax about clock time. In closing, I promise that I will continue to write about time and how to be more in sync with natural time. I think it's going to be a topic that will be more and more on the minds of people as this crazy decade progresses. For now, thanks for being a super time trooper and giving me so much of your precious time to listen to this time sucker of a post. And as always, if you feel so compelled, take some time and give me some feedback. Okay, that's the essay. Hope you enjoyed it, and thanks for listening. A note on the book. Like chapters 9 and 10, which were on episode 15 of the podcast, these chapters have a few moments where some words got cut off. Computer malfunctions. But since the theme of this episode is time, well... I had to debate with myself whether the missing words were bad enough that I wanted to take the time to reread the chapters. And I decided against it. After all, this is a free reading of a book which you could just go ahead and buy for the low price of $4.99. Yes, I'm throwing in a pitch here, but considering how long the book is and all the time I spent creating it, 15 years from inception to publication, well, that's an awfully good price. Or maybe you are less of a perfectionist than I am, and you don't mind a few missing words. In short, it's hard for me to put out stuff that I feel is less than quality, so I'll close this bit by asking you to give me any feedback about things you think I can do better. Because while I am hard on myself, I'm also good at taking constructive criticism, I'd much rather hear something that isn't working for my listeners than have you guys keep it to yourself out of concern I might take it the wrong way. I'll listen to the criticism and consider whether the fix is worth making and go from there. Oh, and this is for you, Ian. If any of you want to come on the podcast to be a comedic partner, a la the Manzai style of comedy popular here in Japan, let me know. While this podcast has been a solo production thus far, I will be moving it into a more collaborative direction, and soon. I think I mentioned way back in episode one that I want to do interviews, or better stated, conversations, because one of the points of this podcast is to create connections and to share the voices of those I connect with. Okay, without further ado, that's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. And now, please enjoy chapters 11 and 12 of book two of The Teacher and the Tree Man. Adios. Chapter 11. The School Shrinks Via Memory Lane. I didn't sleep very well last night, Lucas was telling Sylvanus as the first light of dawn began to illuminate the forest. More dreams? Nah, Lucas said. Ever since you stopped visiting me, they've died down. No, I was just worrying over things, so I woke early and thought the best thing to do was to get out here and give you another dose of mushrooms. Ugh, Sylvanus said. I know. I'm sorry they don't taste better. Even more, I'm sorry that this time I want to give you the biggest dose yet. Double, ugh, Sylvanus said. Also, Lucas said, unfortunately I can't stick around today. But you know what to do. Just remember to try to move your body. Oh, and also do it so you can still sink into the tree so those scientists in Weston won't see you when they come here Wednesday. Got it, Sylvanus said. Let's get it over with. Lucas climbed the ladder and began to feed the tree man the worst breakfast imaginable. He hoped the suffering would be worth it.
This time, Sylvanus didn't throw up. He hated to say he was getting used to the flavor, because he wasn't. Perhaps he was, as Lucas had told him, getting well, and there were less toxins for the medicine to cast out. At least he hoped that was the case. He didn't have the full-on mystical revelation he'd had before, but the forest still took on that strange quality. There was no sense of separation between any of it. Sylvanus spent some time pondering this and just soaking it into his consciousness, but he spent more time moving his body. This time, he was able to move both of his arms and legs, perhaps as much as two inches. It was like being stuck in an extremely heavy costume, and the more he was able to move, the more he felt like the tree was weighing him down. Much as he appreciated the tree for sustaining his life, he wanted out. The sheer exhaustion of attempting to move, combined with the mushroom's strong effects, meant that Sylvanus had to frequently close his eyes and just rest. But it wasn't like resting, for again, he witnessed scenes that seemed every bit as real as waking consciousness. His dad was a large man with a dusty beard and a creased, weathered face. Sylvanus stood behind a shed so his father couldn't see him, and he watched as the big man put his hands over his face and cried. Sylvanus had no idea what his father was crying about. Was it about his dead daughter? Was it about the dust that was consuming everything and making life all but impossible? Was it about the future, wondering what kind of life he was passing on to his remaining four children? Sylvanus sensed that it was all of the above. Still, he also understood that he couldn't comfort his dad. He knew that his dad would feel great shame if he knew that his son had seen him cry. So he sat there and watched, and he realized that his young self would have decided then and there that he was going to get out of that cursed land. He was going to make something of himself. All so he could repay his dad for putting up with such a miserable existence so that his family could live. Sylvanus opened his eyes and was back in the forest. He was also crying. Were these visions really his past? Even as he asked the question, he knew the answer was yes. Visions were just too powerful and clear for him to believe that he was making them all up. As soon as he had seen the large man, he had thought, Dad. What had happened to him? Was his dad still alive, wondering what had become of his son? And then Sylvanus realized that he didn't get to repay his dad, and this idea made Sylvanus cry even more. Eventually, he gathered himself and closed his eyes again. The free world hangs in the balance, said the man in the beige uniform. Hitler and Mussolini in Europe, the Japanese in the Pacific. Our enemies wish us the greatest possible harm. They leave us no choice. He stood in a line of fellow soldiers. Hitler? Mussolini? Suddenly he remembered the war. It had been his ticket out of the dusty lands, his ticket to doing something that could help his family. We've selected you all because you've all shown qualities that this mission requires, the speaker continued. Qualities like intelligence, bravery, and patriotism. And most importantly, the willingness to do whatever it takes to serve the free world. For that, I commend you. Godspeed. The soldiers responded with a hearty, Yes, sir! And the soldier next to Sylvanus said, Long way from life in Boise City, eh, Green? Boise City? Green? Yes, he remembered. That had been his hometown, and Green was his surname. Luke Green from Boise City. Sylvanus opened his eyes. He repeated the name and city several times. He had to remember it so he could tell Lucas. Perhaps the schoolteacher could find out who he was. He figured it was a long shot, but there was no harm in trying. He repeated it over and over. Luke Green, Boise City. Luke Green, Boise City. Until he had to close his eyes again. Sylvanus was standing in front of the fountain again. This time... He wasn't as transfixed by the water. He wanted to figure out where he was, so he took in the whole scene. All it took was for him to turn around, and there it was. Lincolnton Outlet Mall, read the neon-lettered sign. Was this the future? And if so, did that mean the mall would be built? Or was it possible that this was a future? 
and other futures also existed. Those questions danced around Sylvanus's head, and no matter which direction he looked at them from, he didn't have an answer. He didn't want to believe that it was the future, so he consoled himself that perhaps it was just a vision. Yet deep down, he suspected that wasn't the case. The rest of the trip had been less eventful, with no other solid hints toward his past or the future, and only minor progress on moving his body. He was starting to worry. While these mushrooms were certainly helping him make progress, he wondered if they were working fast enough. Did he have enough time before someone started cutting down the forest? It wasn't a thought Sylvanus wanted to entertain, but as he did, he watched his mood darken. Lucas had just finished his peanut butter and onion sandwich lunch and was taking a few minutes to close his eyes and relax, legs stretched out onto his desk, when he heard quickly approaching footsteps in a panting voice asking, Mr. Lucas? Mr. Lucas? Lucas knew from the voice that it was Chris Lee, so he quickly opened his eyes. Chris, what's up? Sorry to bother you again, Mr. Lucas, Lee began, his head cast down with uncharacteristic shyness. But can I ask you a question? No bother, and sure, ask away, Lucas said, trying to extend the friendly vibe to encourage the boy to feel more confident. Well, it's kind of hard to ask, but here goes. Am I a, a bad k kid? Lee asked from behind quivering lips while shuffling his feet. A bad kid? Lucas said in his most incredulous tone. Who told you that? Well, no one said it specifically, Lee said, and Lucas felt a small hint of pride at hearing Lee use one of the vocabulary words they'd recently studied. Okay, Lucas said, feeling a mix between psychiatrist and detective. Who put that idea into your head? Yesterday, Lee said, still shifting his feet back and forth. At the meeting with Mr. Hawkins. Hawkins, thought Lucas. The school counselor. He wasn't surprised. Hawkins was the kind of counselor who remained distant from the students, and worse, didn't seem at all bothered by the fact. To Lucas, it seemed as though Hawkins didn't like kids very much. At least he didn't like their spirit and energy. Hawkins was one of those people who felt the world was rapidly deteriorating and that kids were on the front lines of this disaster. His solution was control. If we adults could somehow reel in the wild children, the world would improve. And his prescription was usually Ritalin, or another of the drugs used to cure this newly coined disease. Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder, ADHD. Lucas didn't begrudge Hawkins for wanting to improve the world. He thought Hawkins was very much mistaken about what the problem was and where the fault lay. To Lucas, it was mostly the adults who'd done the damage. If anything, Lucas thought adults needed to become in touch again with the more natural, expressive energy of children, to see the world with wonder, curiosity, openness, and less cynicism. In this way, Lucas felt like his kids were as much his teacher as he was theirs. Lucas wouldn't get so frustrated with Hawkins if these were just ideas he had, and he wasn't putting those ideas into practice, but he was, and Lucas had watched in the past as creative, energized students had their spirits weakened by Hawkins in the name of control. What else did he tell you? Lucas asked, afraid of the answer. Well, Lee began, he told my folks that he thinks it's better for me to take medication. Said it would help me. Help you? Lucas blurted. Is that really how he said it? Well, yeah, Mr. Lucas. How else would he say it? Shifting, shifting, feet shifting. Lucas felt like telling Lee that the real reason Hawkins felt this was necessary had to do with making Lee conform to the behavior of other kids, but he decided against it. The kid had enough on his plate already. I don't know, he finally answered. Weinberg agrees, Lee said. What do your parents think? Well, they aren't too high on the idea, but they accepted it, Lee answered, and the shifting was picking up its pace. Figures, Lucas thought. He'd met Lee's parents at the teacher-parent night a few weeks back, and they were very friendly, but seemed rather conservative. Figured it was cultural as much as anything else. While well, he wouldn't say these things to many people for fear of being branded a racist, it was rather obvious to him that Asian families taught a strong respect for authority. 
even if what authority wants might go against one's wishes or best interests. Dang, Lucas finally said. I don't know what to tell you, Chris. I will promise you this, though. I'm going to talk to Hawkins to see if there is any way I can convince him that this is the wrong move. Thanks, Mr. Lucas, Lee said. Thanks for backing me on this. You're welcome, Lucas said. Now, class is going to start soon. Got it, Lee said. And with that, the energized, motivated student skipped out into the hallway, and Lucas realized that his shuffling feet had been as much a case of needing to relieve himself as it had been his nerves about talking with Lucas. Lucas simply had to smile. He wasn't going to let this young man be doped into submission without a fight. It's just so frustrating, Lucas told Terry as the family shared a large pepperoni pizza. I know, honey, Terry said. So what are you going to do about it? Talk to Hawkins, he said, first thing in the morning. And tell him what? That Chris is not your normal kid, Lucas said. And that's what's good about him. That we can't always see energetic kids as problems just because they aren't always easy for teachers to handle. Well, I support you 100%, Terry said. Besides, I know even if I didn't, I can tell by your passion it wouldn't do much good to oppose you. Lucas laughed and said, true that. So they finished their dinner, with Lucas feeling good that at least he had his wife's support. It meant a lot to him. While he felt his position was valid, he still struggled with doubt, especially because he was taking an unpopular position. Dinner, Lucas tried to distract himself by watching Sports Center, but it didn't work. Such diversions had become less effective for him in the past few weeks, not only because of his renewed interest in fighting battles in his life, but also because of the events of 9-11. To spend too much time with distractions seemed to him to carry the assumption that life would continue on indefinitely. But who knew? For Lucas, it seemed better to focus on the things one felt passionate about. That way, if something happened where you knew life was soon going to end, you wouldn't feel burdened by guilt for not living a full life. That all said, Lucas still felt like distractions were sometimes psychologically necessary, and now that the sports world wasn't working for him, he felt he needed something else. He then had his answer. As Terry prepared to take one of her long showers, Lucas remembered the weed. Entered the shower, Lucas snuck out into the garage. He was about to light up there, but then realized that perhaps Terry would come out into the garage after the shower. He couldn't figure why she would, but he knew that if she did, she'd easily recognize the pungent smell of the dope and his cover would be blown. So he crept into their small backyard and, using the cover of the trees, lit up. It didn't take more than a few hits for the sensation to begin, a feeling of positivity, one which informed him that no matter his problems, all was okay with the world. Why, Lucas pondered, was this illegal? He'd had this thought on many occasions before, and he'd studied books like The Emperor Wears No Clothes by Jack Herrer, and discover the historical answers. Basically, it came down to the usual suspects, racism, greed, control, short-sighted thinking. But tonight, Lucas didn't spend too much time thinking about it. His mind needed a break, and he was wise enough to give that to himself. He took in the crisp fall air and appreciated the way the wind blew through the leaves of the trees. If nothing else, this herb made him even more aware of the natural world and its many pleasing aspects. He enjoyed this for ten minutes or so before realizing that he'd better get inside before Terry exited the shower. He tried to tone down the smile on his face, and then he had a new worry. Would she see any red in his eyes? If he was going to make a habit of this, he'd have to buy some eye drops. And since he was enjoying that particular moment, he put the purchase on the agenda for Wednesday perhaps before heading out to the forest with the scientists and Weston. Lucas walked inside his house, not noticing the slippery slope he was traversing. Chapter 12, Speaking Out, Shutting Up For the first time in several days, when Lucas entered the teacher's room that morning, nobody approached him with dire warnings. Instead, Lucas was reversing the roles, as he walked straight into Hawkins' office, closed the door behind him, and said, Bill, we need to talk. Hawkins stopped organizing some papers on his desk, focused on the young teacher, and said, Yes, Paul, what is it? 
It's about Chris Lee, Lucas said. And before Hawkins could interject, continued, I don't think medicating him is the wisest course of action. Oh, really? Hawkins said. So what do you suggest we do? Why do we need to do anything? Lucas asked. Because the boy has been disruptive and is thus creating an unsuitable learning environment for the other students, Hawkins said, not to mention the problems he's causing teachers. It's never caused me any trouble. Quite the opposite, Lucas said. Have you ever observed a class with Chris in it? As a matter of fact, I have, Paul. Well, it wasn't my class you observed, Lucas said. And in my class, Chris's enthusiasm motivates the other kids to become more engaged in whatever we are studying. I don't think I need to remind you that yours is not the only class that Chris is in, Hawkins said. And from talking to other teachers and observing some of their classes, it's pretty clear that the boy is a problem. And that problem results in problems for the other students. Talking to other teachers and observing their classes? Lucas asked. Why haven't you ever talked to me or watched my class? I am his homeroom teacher, after all. Look, Hawkins said, I don't have time to talk to everybody or watch every class. I'm sure you can appreciate that. Yeah, I got it, Lucas said. We never have enough time to do all the things we should do. Should do? Hawkins said. You make it sound like, sorry, Lucas butted in, but I don't have a lot of time either. And I can see we are going nowhere. Just hate seeing one of my best students having his spirit bottled up for the sake of control. Is that really how you see it? Hawkins asked. You know, I wonder something, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but heck, we are being honest here, so I'm going to put it out there. I wonder if perhaps you have the same disability Lee has, and if... I can't believe you just said that, Lucas yelled, perhaps a little louder than he meant to. Enthusiasm and passion are disabilities? Wonder people turn into robots after going through school these days, Hawkins chuckled. Robots? Nice. I stepped out of line, but ultimately this issue is about more than you, your class, and Chris Lee. This is about how to make this school the best possible learning environment for everyone. And on this one, I'm afraid your viewpoint is greatly outnumbered. And last, his parents already agreed to it. Lucas had nothing more to say, so he simply turned and walked out of the office, not bothering to close the door. Once again, his efforts had run into an unbending brick wall. He was growing weary of losing. After stopping at a drugstore for the eye drops, Lucas raced home so he could get out to the forest before the scientists and Weston showed up. He made it just in time and was relieved to see that Lucas was sticking to their plan and hiding as best as he could. It was pretty clear to Lucas that the indications of his body were not so overt that anybody would recognize them unless they already believed he was there. What a relief. After the conversation with Hawkins, Lucas needed at least one of his plans to go right. Right on cue, Lucas could hear the scientists and Weston approaching. The Seattle Seahawks and the necessity of the sports world to resume business as usual after taking the last weekend off due to the 9-11 attacks. Good to see they are focused on the task, Lucas thought, before remembering that their lack of focus actually played into his hands. Mr. Lucas, Weston said, entering the grove, I didn't know you'd be honoring us with your presence again. Yes, Lucas responded. I figured this was our last shot, so I had to be here. Hope that's not a problem. No, Weston said. I don't see why I should be. Just as long as like before, we can keep it to ourselves. Suddenly, Lucas realized there was another member of the party. It was the reporter, Mike Wilson. This time, though, no photographer accompanied him. Lucas thought this was a clue that Wilson and the newspaper really didn't expect anything to come of this. Perhaps Wilson still had a sliver of hope, and that's why he'd been allowed to come. But the paper wasn't going to send a photog out when they didn't believe there'd be anything to take a picture of. Hi, Mike, Lucas said, trying his best to be pleasant. Lucas worried that when Sylvanus didn't come out, Wilson might write an article that would not reflect on him too well. As a former reporter... Lucas was aware that it was usually harder for a reporter to write disparaging things about someone if they personally liked them. Good afternoon, Mr. Lucas, Wilson responded, a bit too formally for Lucas's taste. It seemed he was expressing a distance that hadn't existed between them the first time around. At that moment, Lucas realized what his role would be, damage control. He had to figure out a way to keep Wilson's story from calling him a liar, or worse, crazy. 
Lucas was already preparing for the inevitable loss of the forest. What he hadn't considered was that this episode might also result in his loss of standing and respect in the community. Shit, he thought. This thing just keeps snowballing. Well, Mr. Lucas, Weston finally said, the clock is ticking. What do you say? Can you get your mysterious man to show himself to us again? Again, Lucas said, quickly seizing on this possible slip. Are you admitting you saw it last week? Weston shifted on his feet and said, I was merely referring to the fact that you claimed to have seen and spoken of him repeatedly. See, Lucas said with a trace of sarcasm. He considered his next step, and then he had it. I'm afraid if any of you were hoping to meet the man in the tree, you were going to go home disappointed. Why is that? Wilson asked. Because he doesn't want to come out, Lucas said, and he's told me why. So, Wilson said, what is it? Well, quite simply, he just told me this week, which was as much of a shock to me as it might be to you, Lucas said. Basically, he explained that showing himself wouldn't save the forest. It wouldn't? Wilson said. I can assure you, Mr. Lucas. If something so incredible as a man's head living in the side of a tree was discovered here, I'd have no other option but to rule against the developer's plan to build them all. Yes, yes, that I understand, Lucas said. And that was why I was trying so hard to get him to come out the last few times we came out here. But no, the tree man said that if he came out, the forest would simply be developed differently. It would be made into a tourist trap. Lucas was avoiding using Sylvanus's name because he felt reminding Wilson that he'd named him would give the reporter greater reason to mock him. He was also hoping Wilson had forgotten about the name. Nobody said anything. Lucas took their silence as a sign that they understood exactly what he meant. That's right, he went on. Imagine it, a sign pointing from the highway. Come see the tree man. A road leading in here. A giant parking lot just over there. Next to the gift shop, of course. Paved trails running back here, so... People's shoes wouldn't have to get muddy. Benches in this grove. Snacks being sold so the kids could feed the man. The works! While I admit there is a certain logic to your reasoning, Wilson said, do you really expect us to believe that story? After you spent the past two weeks trying to convince all of us that this man exists and that you'd be willing to show him to anyone who took the time to come down here? As I said, Lucas answered, I didn't even think of this until it was revealed to me in a dream the other. A dream? Wilson asked. You learned this in a dream? Shit, Lucas thought. He had definitely not meant to say that. Well, um, yeah, Lucas said, the wind blowing out of his sails. Look, I know it's hard to believe, and frankly, it's sort of irrelevant how he told me. The point is that it's the truth. It is irrelevant, Wilson said. What's relevant is that apparently the man is not going to reveal himself. I'm just curious, Mr. Lucas. If you'd known he wasn't going to come out for a few days, why didn't you contact my office before this afternoon and save us the trouble of coming down here? Lucas hadn't considered that. I'm sorry, you're right. I should have done that. But the man in the tree is a strange fellow, and perhaps I wasn't 100% convinced he wasn't going to show himself. It was just a dream, after all. Well, I am convinced, said Weston. I think we've given you and your man in the tree more than enough time to prove yourselves. Gentlemen? And with that, Weston and the scientists turned and exited the grove as quickly as they'd arrived, leaving only Wilson and Lucas. You know, Wilson finally said, I really wanted to believe you. I really did. Not only for the sake of my own career, but because I think the unusual and magical are some things the world needs more of, especially considering the events of the past few weeks. But now, I just can't, regardless of what I want. I know, Lucas said. I know. Just go easy on me, would you? I've still got a career and a family to consider. And I'm already taking heat at my job for fighting for this forest. Why? Wilson said. Who's giving you heat? Lucas didn't know what to say. Didn't the reporter know about the Weinbergs? And if not, should he tell him? Nah, let him do some work on his own. Nobody in particular, he finally answered. Just good-natured ribbing, and I want to keep it good-natured. So again, go easy on me. I'll see what I can do, Wilson said. Now, I've got a deadline to meet. And just like that, Lucas was alone again in the grove. Little did he know how alone he was going to feel in the coming days.
about ten minutes after Wilson had left the grove, and just as Lucas was about to leave himself, I heard Sylvanus's voice. Now that they are no longer in the way, we can get down to business. Lucas looked up at the tree man and smiled. You're right, Sylvanus. You've got to spend as much of your time as possible trying to wiggle your body free. In the meantime, I need to connect with my friend Larry and get some more mushrooms. Okay, Paul, Sylvanus said. Don't look so down. I'm going to get out of here, or die trying. Sylvanus laughed, but Lucas just stared at the tree man and wondered, What kind of joke was that? You aren't going to die, Lucas said. I'll make sure of that. See you around. <laughs>